The time is now 6 o'clock on the dot. And welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, February 15th. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Christina Leffring. In tonight's news, Madison's budgetary shortfall is looming, and city leaders only have a couple of months to decide how to handle it. The spring primary is coming up this Tuesday, and one candidate running for the Dane County Board says her background in affordable housing work would be an asset. And in the second half, transparency talks, the latest information on fishing conditions, and an update from Madison's Flamingos. This is Marcus Slayton and Christina Leffring with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. And here are tonight's headlines. Prominent Republican multimillionaire Eric Hoofdy is running for Congress, reports the Associated Press. He's expected to officially launch his bid next week. He'll be taking on Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin this fall, as the senator seeks her third term. Hovde isn't new to politics. He ran for the office in 2012, losing in the primary to former Governor Tommy Thompson. Thompson lost to Baldwin in the general election. In 2021, Hovde got involved in local Madison elections, though not publicly. In that election season, he spearheaded an effort to put up billboards targeting Madison Alders running for re-election who, he said, wanted to defund police. Two other Republicans are considering runs for the Senate seat, Franklin businessman Scott Mayer and former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. A proposed state constitutional amendment that would block government bodies from giving preferential treatment on the basis of diversity, equity, and inclusion passed in the Wisconsin Assembly today. The measure faces an uphill path. It will have to pass in both chambers of the legislature in two consecutive sessions, then go before voters in a statewide referendum. The Senate has only a few days left this session before joining in March, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Republicans have turned towards the process of constitutional amendments to avoid the veto pen of Governor Evers, who has rejected more bills than any other governor in state history. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says a Republican effort to legalize marijuana for medicinal use has stalled for now. The Assembly plan was to create a network of state-run marijuana dispensaries, but the prospect of the state distributing cannabis got a cold shoulder from Republicans in the state Senate. Senate President Chris Kapenga doesn't like the idea of legal marijuana in any form, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Governor Tony Evers has called for full legalization of marijuana, a step the neighboring states of Illinois, Michigan, and Minnesota have already taken. The lure of a $70 million federal grant to advance high-tech innovation in the Milwaukee-Madison corridor moved state lawmakers to make a rare bipartisan commitment this week. The Capital Times report that reports that the legislature voted almost unanimously to earmark $7.5 million as part of the grant application. Governor Evers has two weeks to approve the funding before the application deadline. In October, the White House recognized a group of biotech businesses, colleges, and agencies in the Southeast Wisconsin as one of 31 regional tech hubs across the nation. Those hubs will now compete 
for one of up to eight federal grants ranging up to $70 million. The grants were authorized under the CHIPS and Science Act of 2022. The coal-burning Oak Creek Electrical Generating Plant will be converted to burn natural gas in a $1.2 billion project planned by plant owner We Energies. The, plant, the utility also plans to spend $200 million on a liquefied natural gas storage tank and another $211 million to install gas-fired generating engines at its Paris power plant in Kenosha County, Wisconsin, Public Radio reports. Document, documents the utility filed with the State Public Service Commission show it anticipates the Oak Creek conversion will be complete by June 2028. It hopes to have the gas-fired equipment at the Paris plant operating by the summer of 2026. The changes are a response to growing electrical demand as well as the prospect of new clean air rules, the utility says. Dane County officials are making small tweaks to its network of outdoor warning sirens in the wake of last week's tornadoes. The Department of Emergency Management will be conducting monthly tornado siren tests throughout the year. Previously, the department had not conducted outdoor tests during the winter months of December, January, and February. Emergency management will also change how often it sounds its sirens during ongoing tornado warnings, airing those warnings every seven minutes while an active tornado warning is in place. The updates were shared in a memo from the Dane County Executive Joe Parisi to Charles Tubbs, the head of Dane County's emergency management. Parisi characterized the changes as adapting to extreme weather caused by climate change. Last year, Dane County upgraded the software system used to control the outdoor warning sirens to the tune of nearly $2 million. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. We're nine months out from the next city budget being adopted, but early on, the Madison City Council is learning that they have some tough financial decisions to make. And Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway is asking alders to pick a direction early at the start of a tough budget process. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. Madison's impending budget woes was the subject of a more than two-hour presentation on Tuesday where City Finance Director Dave Schmidicke and his staff outlined causes and what are likely to be painful solutions. You have to pass a balanced budget. That is the uh, law of Wisconsin as well as it is in its constitution. The problem stems from a few factors. The first is a projected $27 million structural deficit for 2025. That means the city isn't raising enough revenue to match the cost of the projected operating budget, and state lawmakers aren't helping the problem. Of all Wisconsin's cities, towns, and villages, Madison is getting one of the lowest amounts per resident in state aid, after lawmakers overhauled the formula for shared revenue last summer. According to one analysis from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, only the village of Merton in Waukesha County received less per resident than Madison. The state legislature restricts other options for raising the required cash. The city's largely maxed out its largest revenue source, property taxes. Madison's revenue is taking a hit, but a growing population is driving an increased demand for city services, and the city's expenses are increasing. 
The current operating budget, approved last November, is the highest budget on record for the city. Finally, Madison's debt service, paying off its credit card for projects in the last decade or so, accounts for just under 16% of the city's 2024 budget. While that's more or less the state average, debt payments could take on a bigger share of the city's budget in future years. Schmidicki says that debt service is a non-negotiable part of the city's budget. We cannot reduce debt service. That is for debt that's already been incurred. We have both serious financial and reputational consequences of not paying that debt back. While balancing the budget will likely include several approaches, there are two broad options for balancing next year's budget, decrease expenses or increase revenue. Alders could decide to cover the $27 million shortfall by reducing personnel and services. According to Schmidicki, those cuts would have to be extreme. One way to look at it is 27 million is equal to the entire streets division budget. As a percentage of the budget, what does 27 million mean? So obviously, as I mentioned, we cannot cut debt service. So if you take that out and leave the rest of the general fund budget, that's an 8% across the board cut. They could also roll back new initiatives. Later in the meeting, Alder Sabrina Madison of the Far East Side said the council should consider the consequences of sweeping cuts. Chief Barnes just talked about like the state of Madison's public safety. And because the numbers seem to be pretty good and crime is down, that means hopefully that uh, investing in violence prevention programming is, work, is working. And so for me, I'm just thinking about like what we cut or what we don't cut or what we create to sort of like get through all of this, not losing focus on crime prevention. So if Alders decide they want to continue city services and staff wages from this year to the next, they will need to find a way to increase revenue. Schmidicki says the city would need to create new special charges or increase existing revenue sources like flat fees. He says that some city programs could support low-income residents with increasing charges and fees to offset equity concerns on that path. One example? The little-used MADCAP program, which helps reduce utility costs for low-income residents. Schmidicki presented a third option, to increase property taxes, the city's primary revenue source. But that would require approval from voters this year through a referendum on the ballot. And should they say yes, Schmidicki says the increased property taxes would only be a band-aid solution and not sustainable in fixing the problem long-term. Under state law, in terms of the way the referendum has to be structured, you can do either a one-time increase. So let's say it's $10 million. You can do $10 million once and it goes away. That's one option. The other option is to do $10 million and that $10 million stays there permanently out into the future. But $10 million permanently becomes a smaller and smaller share of the budget you know, over time as costs go up. Several alders on Tuesday seemed reluctant to be called on for such a big decision. But Mayor Rhodes-Conway says these tough choices are up to the council. And she's asking for their buy-in early, at the start of a tough budget cycle, as city staff begin to draft their budget requests for 2025. That's part of why we're here so early, uh, is that, that we are in the process now of crafting that message to staff. Um, and I don't want to send them a signal that you all are not comfortable with. If the council signals they're open to a referendum in November, it would need to be approved by late August. 
That's because state law requires all ballot items to be submitted 70 days prior to an election. The city budget process, though, is typically finalized and adopted in the second week of November. So if city leaders opt to push a referendum, they'd still need to prepare a second backup budget. The council has just weeks to decide on the path forward. The council is slated to discuss their options at a meeting in three weeks on March 5th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. This week saw a big development in efforts to reshape Wisconsin's latest legislative boundaries following years of gerrymandering claims and legal fights. Organizations that have long called for an independent process say the latest steps aren't perfect, but would go a long way in establishing more fairness. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Wisconsin is closer to adopting political maps for legislative seats advocates insist would reverse years of gerrymandered districts. One coalition says despite some skepticism, the latest move offers hope in restoring the will of voters. This week, the Republican-led legislature approved the map submitted by Democratic Governor Tony Evers as legal wrangling plays out, including the involvement of the state Supreme Court and its new liberal majority. Yuseli Flores with the Wisconsin Fair Maps Coalition says if these maps are fully implemented, they'll finally usher in a more balanced legislative body. These maps would change Wisconsin's future for years to come, and it will definitely get rid of What happened in 2011, it'll dismantle that partisan gerrymander. Following the 2010 census, Republicans were in charge of the redistricting process and have since maintained large majorities in the legislature. That's despite more competitive races for statewide elections. Evers has pledged to sign the maps. However, some of his fellow Democrats have misgivings about the GOP's approach, including language that says the maps wouldn't take effect until the general election in November, excluding any special or recall elections this year. And some policy analysts say Republicans still might hold a slight advantage even with the Evers maps. However, Flores says that doesn't mean there won't be any progress in establishing the change advocates want to see. She adds this could help bolster candidate recruitment in marginalized districts. Folks that might not have millions of dollars in the bank that are running because they're tired of big money politics. State election leaders have set a deadline of March 15th for the new maps to be in place. The hurry to update the boundaries comes after the Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned the current legislative districts in a December ruling. The court would have to choose maps if an agreement isn't finalized in time. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The 2024 spring election season is ramping up. In terms of local elections, the big races on the ballot are for Dane County Board of Supervisors. Only two Dane County Board seats have more than two candidates. That means they'll be headed to the spring primary next Tuesday, February 20th. The top two finishers from the primary will move on to the spring election on April 2nd. This week, we take a look at District 36, where the current supervisor, State Senator Melissa Ratcliffe, has decided not to run for another term. Now, three candidates are vying to take the job and represent the village of Cottage Grove, as well as portions of East Madison and Sun Prairie. They are Andrew McKinney, Lorraine Gage, and David Peterson. Earlier today, WORT news producer Faye Parks spoke to Lorraine Gage to hear her priorities for District 36. Thank you for joining me, Lorraine. Absolutely. Thank you for this opportunity. To start, can you tell us a bit about yourself? 
What is your background and what are your qualifications to serve on the Dane County Board? Currently, I serve on the Monona Groves Board as the president, and I have served as the president for the past three years and served on the board for a total of five years. So that kind of talks a little bit about the leadership experience I have. And my employment, I have worked in the affordable housing sector for uh, numerous years. So I would say definitely over six or seven years in affordable housing in leadership roles. So worked as a client services director at housing initiatives right here in Madison and uh, basically helped um, individuals that were formerly homeless to find housing stability. So I led a department of caseworkers to ensure individuals that were experiencing homelessness had all that they needed to thrive in their housing. In addition to doing that, I worked at Moving Out, which uh, is an organization that helps people with disabilities and also individuals that are in need of housing. I managed a department to ensure that the residents thrived in their units and to kind of serve as a liaison between the property manager and the resident. Very much enjoyed those positions, so really have a lot of experience in affordable housing. In addition to doing that, I've served as an educator in both Milwaukee Public Schools and also in Madison. And I just feel that a lot of those skills are are very applicable to the Dane County Board role. Definitely affordable housing is uh, a huge issue right now. And I have extensive experience working with people directly that are homeless and then also in a leadership role. Also, I served as a leader for the core committee, which is a, a committee that helps with funding for organizations that uh, work with homelessness. So I've worked on the county level and then also on a local level with people that experience home insecurity. So definitely have a lot of that experience in that realm. What are some of your priorities for District 36 specifically? Uh, So there are a lot of issues uh, uh, that I would would like to work on. So uh, as I kind of talked about in affordable housing, we have a newly built project in uh, Cottage Grove that's called Glen Grove. And I really want the residents to thrive there and have resources that can help them in, in so many ways. So for instance, working with the Parks and Rec Department, ensuring that we have funding to support residents, also working with the school district to ensure that they have educational resources to support them. And then, you know, looking at things like such as transportation, which can, you know, affect them to get around and then to maybe possibly find employment. Some other areas that are of interest to me is um, working with residents that are interested in uh, making sure that the Glacial Drumlin Trail is safe. For them to ride on. So there's a portion of the Glacial Drumlin Trail that residents have to come off of the trail and ride along on the street. And working with the county and any other officials that can make sure that this trail is safe so that people don't have to ride along on the street is very important to me. And then really listening to the issues of District 36, you know, things that we can do to improve in housing, improve in economic stability and other areas as well. So I know that criminal justice reform is a pretty big talking point this year. What is your perspective on that? So kind of twofold. I think definitely it is important that um, individuals that are um, in the jail system are in a safe environment, that it is habitable and that they're able to, you know, live a, a decent life in there. But I think also we need to focus on social services programs so that we don't have so many people in the jails. So I think 
really working alongside with officials in the jail criminal system of how we can help uh, individuals come out of jail. And then sometimes I think people are going to jail for things that are frivolous. And what can we do to work together to ensure that people are not having to to go to jail um, is, is very important. So I think twofold, again, kind of working on policies and programs to prevent people from going to jail and to continuously go back to jail is important. And then also um, ensuring that the individuals that are there are in a safe environment. So meanwhile, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi's retirement is around the corner. What are your thoughts on that race? And should you win a seat on the county board? How do you plan to navigate the transition? I think... Um, you know, my experiences of, of working on a school board, I think I have the ability to work with any individual that is in leadership. Um, I definitely understand retirement. I mean, um, I think that's normal, a process when people are on boards. You know, they don't stay on boards for a long time or, or in positions for a long time. So whoever wins the race, I, I, you know, I welcome them and want to work with them. Um, but, you know, just those issues that are affordable housing are very important to me. Um, and social services program. So um, I will just push for those policies, but I'm glad, gladly work with any individual that takes that position. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. Um, I'm really enthusiastic about um, this opportunity to serve on the Dane County Board. Um, I just have a strength in connecting with the community, and I think that is just a, a huge resource that, um, one, on the board, but also for my community. Um, one of the biggest things that I have done of late in my community is really connected um, our library group in Cottage Grove to um, a new apartment building in our um, district and really trying to help individuals or young children that need programming, need to be connected um, with educational services, um, helping uh, those families. Um, and really um, connecting with the residents um, is really important to me. So connecting with businesses, um, understanding the needs of my community and my district as a whole, I think is very important. I think I have a strong um, uh, strength in listening to concerns and really advocating for those concerns as well. Um, and I would love to do that um, uh, as a next thing County Board of Supervisors for District 36. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Lorene. Absolutely. Thank you for this opportunity. That was Lorene Gage, one of three candidates in the race to represent District 36 on the Dane County Board. We heard from one of her opponents, David Peterson, earlier this week. You can access his interview on our website. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with co-host Christina Leffering. Thanks for joining us. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT's Dylan Brogan and open records attorney Tom Kamenick discuss competing ideas on who should pay for redactions when police body cam footage is requested. As always, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice, but rather a discussion of general legal issues. All right, joining me now is Tom Kamenick. Hey, Tom, how you been? 
Hey, Dylan, I've been doing good. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Another fine day for open government in Wisconsin. It is sunny. Yes, it is. And we're and today we are talking about redactions. So let's just start at the beginning. What rules are there when it comes to redacting public records? And are redactions even mentioned in Wisconsin's open government laws? Yeah, the, there's language right in there dealing with redactions because there is plenty of information that cannot be released. We know there's you know, records, education records under FERPA. You can't identify individual students, um, juvenile criminal records. You can't name the, the, the juvenile. So lots of information will get redacted or removed from records. So in, in the old days, it was literally taking a, a marker over a piece of paper and blacking things out. Now there are uh, plenty of tools to do that electronically on written documents, but video and audio recordings have to be redacted too. And for an audio recording, you just delete the portion where sensitive information is being discussed. But in video, uh, video recordings, you have to uh, redact some of the audio if they're saying things that can't be released, but also parts of the video need to be redacted. You know, a face of a juvenile, a face of a victim would be obvious things. If the officer's body camera captures uh, their the computer in their squad car that has confidential information, that part has to be blurred out. So, so that's work that needs to be done and it's mentioned in the open records law, but as you alluded to, they can't charge you for that. That, that came from a, a decision from the Wisconsin Supreme Court Oh, in the last 10 years or so, where the Supreme Court said, no, that's not one of the things they can charge you for. The government can't charge you for the work they do to give you less information because when they redact stuff, you know, you're not benefiting for that. That that doesn't uh, that doesn't inure to your benefit as the requester. Yeah. And you could see why, you know, if you just have to blur out a name or black out a name in a, in a written document, not so much a big deal. Um, but, you know, some real technology has to go into blurring faces on a video with while showing the rest of it. So there aren't different redaction rules for video. No, and it definitely is a labor intensive process. If you are if if you're the custodian and you have to watch an hour of video to see if anything needs to be redacted, it's going to take you about an hour just to watch it all. But if you're stopping and going back and looking at things and then you've got to uh, use the software tools that you have to do actually do the redactions, it is a long process. I, I was on a, a podcast with uh, with a sheriff who was was talking about about doing this. And he said in his experience, it's about an hour and a half of work for every hour of video that needs to be redacted. And, you know, if you if there's a crime scene with uh, multiple squad cars reporting you've got a body cam for every officer that was there and a, a possibly squad car cameras as well so even if it's just i want a 15 minute period of time there might be five six seven eight cameras uh, all recording at the same time that have to be reviewed yeah i watched that uh, i watched and people can listen to that fox 6 milwaukee podcast and and the dodge county sheriff was a guest along with you and a journalist and um you know he was presenting a kind of a different side of it where you know you're saying we have to hire a full-time person eighty thousand dollars a year to do this work and this is an additional public service that's sort of outside the scope of what were they were thinking in the 1984 you know public records law do you have any sympathy for that argument because this burden does ultimately fall on you know local 
government entities like the Dodge County Sheriff's Office. Two things there. One, the, the law was passed in 81, but oh, it, 81. They, Thank you. it was a forward-looking legislature. They did in, specifically include electronic records and video records of all sorts in the in the law. So they were aware of this possibility. They may not have been expecting to have to do redactions of large amounts of body camera. That, that's certainly true. And so don't get me wrong. It is an expense. Somebody has to be paid to do this. I'm, I'm not qualified to comment on whether the person needs to be paid $80,000 a year, uh, what kind of t- expertise it takes, but it is an expense of some kind. And But the question is, who pays for it? That's what it comes down to. And this, I've always seen this, this is a public service. These are the public records. And as I mentioned before, it doesn't benefit the requester to do these redactions. It benefits you know, the victim whose identity is being concealed or, or the, the, the juvenile whose identity is being concealed or, or somebody else. This should be part of the overall cost of doing business that is spread out among all the taxpayers. Let's go now to talking about the wide sages at the the state Senate, right? They have a a potential solution to this. So what's this bill having to do um, with redactions that's currently, uh, who knows where it's at in the legislature, but it's at least being floated as an idea. So that legislation proposes to make requesters pay for that redaction time. Current law is it, it has to be borne by the custodian. It's paid for and spread out among taxpayers then. Uh, but the legislation says, no, this would be another one of the things that the requester has to pay, which frankly is going to mean that everybody stops requesting body camps. It's, it's going to go from there's a fair amount of requesting of it now to almost nobody will will be able to pay for it. And so this information will basically disappear from the public sphere at that point because people aren't making their requests and aren't requesting the getting the records and then publicizing them anymore so you you lose out on that unless the the law enforcement agency decides to post things publicly which they you know on occasion they do especially when there's you know a controversial or a lot of attention being paid to a particular incident but that's that's a big loss not just for the individual making the record request but for all of us you know the, these records very often get posted publicly up, up on YouTube or other sites so that people can see them and see what these police interactions were like. See if the uh, the description of the police interaction in the reports matches what the video shows. And that's often what people are looking at. All right. Well, if that's not the best solution to make requesters pay for redactions, is there a better way? Is there other ideas out there uh, of maybe how to relieve this burden of from local government entities and um, but also, you know, make sure they're widely accessible and and, and it's not cost prohibitive to see body cam footage or, or other video footage from a from a government? What I would do is I would centralize all of this video redaction work. I would have Uh, a bill that creates the duties in the Department of Justice, provides funding for it, for a centralized location to store and do the video redaction work on police body cam videos. You know, that way you don't have your, you know, small village of a thousand people has to try to field an expert and find an expert to do video redaction. You don't have different rules or different procedures across the state about what they will and what they won't do or how long it takes. Instead, you get a, a group of experts who are familiar with this, who uh, who do it regularly, who can do it quickly. 
the Department of Justice could much more easily afford higher quality redacting software that uses artificial intelligence processes to do things more quickly, to more accurately and quickly do these redactions. I think that's the best solution to this problem of, you know, especially small law enforcement agencies being burdened with having to put in a lot of hours on these requests and having to find room in their own budgets for it. All right. So multiple ideas out there. Uh, We'll keep you updated on what happens next. Tom Kamenik, open government attorney. Thank you so much for joining us on Transparency Talk. Always a pleasure, Dylan. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. The warm weather hasn't helped the ice fishing scene around Madison, but don't worry. There are still some safe ice around town and the rivers and streams are wide open. Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg never stop fishing and break down what's happening on this week's Fishy Business. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it is, uh, you know, last time we talked, we thought that it would cool down, hopefully at least a little bit, but it, I think it's done kind of the opposite. I think it's warmed up a little bit since the last time we talked. So just sort of starting right out of the gate. Uh, I know it's been warm and people have been a little bit concerned about the ice in recent weeks. Is there anywhere in uh, Madison here where there is uh, still ice that's good enough for some ice fishing? There is. There, there are plenty of folks still getting out in areas like uh, Cherokee Marsh here on the north side. Folks have been getting out there. Um, also on Monona Bay, Warner Bay here on Lake Mendota on the north side. There have been some folks out there still. And like I said, Monona Bay. And then also uh, Lake Farm Park on the north end of Lake Wabisa have all seen anglers out there. Uh, that being said, um, in a lot of places they've put boards down so that you can get uh, from the shore out to the ice. Uh, where, and once you're on the ice, it's been generally in pretty good shape, six to eight inches in a lot of places, but it's softer ice. And, you know, it's hard to say how long the, the ice is going to hold on, but with uh, the nice cool temps this weekend coming up, I think it'll firm it up and, and, and a lot of folks will still be getting out. I was going to say now WPR uh, reported yesterday, Wisconsin is currently on track for its warmest winter on record ever, uh, so, which doesn't make ice fishing particularly great, but there is still plenty of winter left to go. Uh, you know, the things can still change. We might still have a little bit of a chance to get out there on some of those other waters, but there is still some ice fishing happening. So uh, let's sort of uh, go down the list a little bit there and start with Lake Mendota. Any Anything happening there? Well, Lake Mendota, the only consistent ice that I know about is in Warner Bay, uh, where, where folks have been able to get out there. And they're catching some good pike out there. Uh, not much action for panfish, but a lot of smaller pike in that 20 to 30-inch range have been coming through the ice, and a few nice ones here and there, too. Um, and I, I guess I should say, since we're talking about Mendota, Cherokee Marsh here on the north side, like I mentioned, is also uh, considered part of Mendota. And Folks have been getting out there, although the shorelines out there are pretty rough, uh, but there are some boards out. And like I said, with these cooler temps, uh, there, there should be some folks up there this weekend. And let's move over to Monona. Anything happening there? Well, Monona Bay is really, you know, it's been the main bite in town and, and folks are definitely still getting out. There's boards out in a few spots so folks can get on the ice. And folks are still finding great, great numbers of bluegills in there and decent size too. I mean, some you got to sort through some of the smaller fish to find uh, what you might consider a keeper. But um, 
yeah, they've, they've been getting on Monona Bay, Squaw Bay to a little lesser extent, or Weechawak Bay, I should say, uh, to a lesser extent. But um, that's about it for what I know about on Lake Monona. And then the last one we'll cover today, we'll sort of go quickly over the lakes today, is Wabisa. You mentioned there's a little ice there. What's happening? Yeah, in the north end of the lake, off Lake Farm Park, it's a nice big shallow bay there, so that ice is held on. They, did, they have had some boards out up there as well. And folks are getting good numbers of bluegills and some good action for pike on tip-ups. And now, unfortunately, you know, not a ton of ice out there at the moment, so not super in-depth there. But the good thing about fishing is there's always fishing happening. There's always places to fish, such as on the rivers. So I want to sort of move over there, and I want to sort of take them. Uh, let's go sort of one at a time and start off with the Wisconsin River. What's happening on the Wisconsin River? Action on the Wisconsin's been great. Uh, folks have been launching boats. Uh, more and more folks coming through the shop that have unwinterized their boats already for the first time in their lives this early in the year. But uh, getting up on the rivers and finding good walleyes, if you can find, well, all of the dams up and down the river have been great. So Prairie du Sac, Wisconsin Dells, Castle Rock, Petenwell have all been great on the Wisconsin River. Uh, but also if you can find uh, deeper uh, corners and pockets, uh, they're finding good numbers of walleye and sauger in there. Not much in the way of size, but real good numbers and good action. And now I, I want to hit the Yahara River now. Now I know last week tornado went through uh, Rock County area near Evansville, and I know that the uh, Yahara River was sort of hit by that tornado, or at least it, it seems that it was. Uh, have you heard anything there, or has there been any change since those storms passed through last week? I haven't heard much uh, in the way of change in the river. Uh, not, not many people trying to navigate the river this time of year. So I haven't heard much in the way of any damage. Uh, I know that anywhere you can find a dam on the Yahara River. So, you know, where, where water comes out of uh, Wabisa, for instance, at, at Babcock Park and has, has been good. Uh, the Stoughton Dam uh, has been good. Anywhere you can find a dam, you're likely to find fish backed up there this time of year. All right. And final river, the Rock River. What's happening on there? They're also catching walleye and sauger down there, too. Uh, the Jefferson Dam has been great, but really the whole area from Lake Koshkanong all the way upstream past Fort Atkinson and up to the Jefferson Dam has been holding a lot of walleyes and saugers, uh, catching them, you know, on the traditional uh, minnow on a jig, but also uh, pulling walleye flies uh, is another interesting way that uh, folks catch uh, walleyes, and they've been doing well over there, too. So lots of good opportunities for folks. And the final thing I want to touch on is trout fishing. There is a, we are in open trout season right now, although you can't use uh, any live bait uh, and it's uh, catch and release only. But what's happening with the trout season right now? Uh, that's right. The, the trout fishing has been great. Uh, I've talked to several anglers coming through the shop that have been finding uh, some good action on the fly side of things with some hatches of uh, small midges and stoneflies coming off. So dry flies that imitate those uh, have been uh, catching good fish. But, uh, you know, if you're using spinning gear, a small Rapala-style lure runs slowly through uh, deep corners has been producing fish, uh, or like a, a tube jig, uh, can also uh, be really great this time of year. And folks are definitely finding fish, and, you know, the, with the water warming up, they're only going to get more active. I'm a MEPS guy myself, the MEPS number two. That's my that's always my go-to for trout. Well, Pat, that's about all, all we have for today here. A little bit on the lighter side. You know, spring fishing might be coming sooner than we think, but do you have just any final thoughts for people out there? Well, you know, if you're getting out on the ice, be safe, of course. Uh, you know, only fish uh, where, where you're comfortable. And um, otherwise, you know, like we said, lots of other great opportunities on rivers and streams around Madison area. So get out there and enjoy the weather.
Well, Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want just by calling one easy number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. Forward Madison begins their preseason slate on Friday with a trip up to the Twin Cities. They'll square off against MLS Next Pro side Minnesota United 2. But before that, Forward Focus takes us back a few weeks to the club's town hall meeting, where head coach Matt Glazer outlined returning players and new signings. Here's Andrew and Grant with all the details. Hello again and welcome to everyone listening to WORT online in 89.9 FM on your radio dial. This is another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for cultural and Forward Madison theme magazine, New Dogma Zine. Joining me as always is the editor of NDZ and the producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt. When we last left you... Andrew and I attended a recent town hall meeting at the Forward Club, located in historic Bree Stevens Field, where FMFC head coach and technical director Matt Glazer and club CEO Connor Kaloya spoke to fans about a variety of topics, including the club's community initiatives, new player signings, and what else fans could expect to see for the upcoming 2024 campaign. For this week's segment, we return to the town hall meeting and some audio on the recruitment process for a club like Forward Madison, and just how Glazer and his team went into the offseason looking to sign the players they have and build the type of squad to bring home a trophy. Andrew, take it away. Glazer started his recruitment comments focusing mostly on the defense and midfield, waxing effusive about the returners from the 2023 season. Glazer highlighted positive contributors and his excitement around new recruit Michael Chalaka, who spent his youth career at Maccabi Tel Aviv in Israel's first division, and most recently for San Diego Lowell, the now-defunct Lannon Donovan-led USL championship outfit. Yeah, so like I said, 20, 20 signed players, guys. Um, we've returned uh, 12, if you inc- uh, include uh, Wolfie. Uh, Wolfgang Prentice uh, will be returning to us on loan from, from Oakland uh, on, a season long, uh, on a season-long loan. From the back, we've got uh, our goalkeeping cores back with Burn, uh, Burn Shipman and, and Martin Sanchez. Uh, so two, two strong goalkeepers. Uh, very pleased with that. Back lines returned. Same back line, obviously. Same back line in terms of Jake Cruel, uh, Mitch Osman, Timmy Mel, and Stephen Payne um, was was our, primarily our, our starting back four uh, for for most of the season last year. Um, we've added Michael Chalaka to that group. He's a player who who has a great background. He's played in Israel. Highest level um, was at San, uh, San Diego Loyal, uh, the championship team that, that folded uh, last year, but got some games with them. Young uh, athletic center back who, who we have high hopes for, high ceiling, um, and uh, we think he's going to come in and push. He's a little bit different profile than, than what we've had in the past. He's, he's a little bit nasty. He's a little bit of, a, of a, an aggressive type of player. Not that our other guys aren't, but he's, he's definitely trending more towards the maybe the mean guy uh, back there uh, we got some we got some nice guys sometimes heading into the midfield so obviously Mike's new we're Aiden Macias is returning um, 
So, so obviously he, he was a guy who, who we had a, a, a lot of respect for last year. He, he really, really kicked on, and I thought he was one of our more improved players over the course of the season. He came in, uh, having, having been out of the game for a little bit, came in and, and uh, really kicked on, and I thought was one of our, one of our stronger players towards the end of the season. Um, sticking with returners, we, we said Payne already. Derek Gephardt, uh, Derek Gephardt can play a bunch of different positions. He's been with us now for, I think this will be his third or fourth year um, with the club. So Derek's been a stalwart for us last year, six goals. Uh, so we're really hoping he can continue to kick on and, 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 and continue that production. Uh, Nazim Bartman up top with uh, obviously Nazim had five goals last year. Just a just a good, steady, solid player in our league who who you know we think is going to be competitive up there. Maro Sichero, um was a guy who we felt like there, I have I have a, I have a little bit higher hopes for him this year. I think he's got more to give. He's a, he's a very talented player, um, and I think uh, he's come in with a bit, bit of a chip on his shoulder. I think to, to prove something. And obviously Christian Chaney uh, will be returning uh, will be returning as well. Um, and we already mentioned Wolfie. Um, and we know Chaney, 11 goals. I think I think there's double that in him. Uh, uh, you know, I think there's double that in him if we can get the best out of him. So that's that's going to be the idea for Chris. Glazer went on to talk about new boys Jimmy Villalobos, John Murphy, Devin Boyce, Shreve Jay, and Juan Galindrez, all who have a USL League One pedigree. Boyce and Murphy won the league with Omaha in 2021. Galindrez is still Chattanooga Red Wolves' all-time goal scorer with 25 goals across the 2021 and 2022 seasons. Villalobos, who played on that same Chattanooga team, helped them finish third and fourth in those seasons, respectfully. We've announced uh, Jimmy Villalobos um, just recently. He's coming to us on loan from from one Knoxville for the year. Um, really, really like this player. He was a player who was at Chattanooga in the past um, with that team, with Timmy Mello, the team that made it to the final uh, in 22. Um, just a really strong, solid central midfield player, box to box, can, can get involved in attacks, can, can help us spread the ball around and play the way we like to play. Um, John Murphy, another guy who's, who's, who's had success in the league, uh, League One. Uh, you know, League One player, obviously with with Omaha, uh, had been spent some time with uh, with New York Red Bulls too, and then obviously with Tormenta last year. So, just uh, I think a really strong midfield. Um, Devin Boyce is another guy we've added who, who's been a rival of ours in the league. Uh, we know him. We know he's he's hard to play against, and we, we value that. You know, we value that aggressiveness. We obviously needed to go out and replace Andrew Wheeler, um, you know, who, who's retired. Um, so he's he's a guy who's that aggressive type of, of player in the midfield that, that we felt like we needed to, to bring in and add quality there. Um, Obviously, sticking with guys that, that we've added in, um, Sharif uh, Sharif Dai, who, who's coming to us from Fresno Fuego, uh, Senegalese international. You know, scored some great goals. Um, just a lot of upside, a lot of one v one, a lot of power, a lot of things that that you know I think he'll bring in terms of a different profile than maybe what we've had in the past a little bit. Just a powerful one v one type of player. I'm um, really excited. Juan Galindres, obviously, you know, is a big signing for us. He's a striker. I think he's the eighth all time leading scorer in, in, in our league. Um, so he knows how to score. He's he's a proven goal scorer in our league. I think he scored 23 goals or something like that for Chattanooga in two seasons. So uh, he's a guy we expect to come in and enhance pr- productivity-wise. That was a, obviously a big thing for us was was getting better in, in the attacking phase of the game, right? Adding goals, and, and uh, we've added a, a proven goal scorer in our in our in our league. Ford Madison FC is back in action tomorrow as they kick off their 2024 preseason slate with a trip up to the Twin Cities to take on MLS Next Pro Squad Minnesota United 2 at 10 a.m. Doors are closed to the public, but Andrew and I will be there covering the match, and we'll have a recap of that and their second preseason matchup against MLS Next Pro's Chicago Fire 2 in our next segment. But that'll do it for this week. 
As always, we hope that you'll join us again in two weeks as Andrew and I continue to keep you up to date on all the news, updates, and stories coming out of Bree Stevens Field as we begin the 2024 campaign. For WRT, this has been Ford Focus. That's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Special thanks to feature contributors Dylan Brogan and Tom Kamenick, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg, and the Ford Focus crew, and Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Nicole Alley engineered the show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm Christina Leffring. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Have a good night. I understand the desire to have finance staff solve the problem for you. I often feel that desire as well. Um. <laughs>